We started uh, a new series uh, a couple of weeks ago when we were delving into Mark's gospel, and we're going to pick up that up again. And we're so still kind of orientating ourselves. Uh, we're in chapter one, and we're going to be looking at uh, verses fourteen through to twenty. Just to say, first of all, um, just by way of a little bit of background with Mark's gospel, he's, it's recognised as possibly, yeah, most scholars would agree that this was probably the first biographical account of Jesus' earthly ministry. And uh, Mark himself is identifies as the, the cousin of Barnabas, who was one of the very first uh, converts of uh, the church in Jerusalem. And he be- went on to become the interpreter for Peter himself, as Peter went around about telling the good news, Mark was sort of like scribbling all down and uh, he was interpreting because Peter was a Jew, remember, and he was going to uh, Gentile, beginning to get into Gentile communities as well. So Mark would have been his interpreter, speaking the, the lingo for him. So, And basically that's the foundation of Mark's gospel. He's sort of scribbling down the things he's hearing from Peter. And maybe in some sense that's why it's the first, but it's also the shortest of the gospels. You also notice as well, I said a couple of weeks ago that uh, Mark, when he writes, he, he writes in quite a brisk manner. There's not many long pauses or reflections, and he's writing. You could almost be forgiven that Jesus' uh, three-year ministry was completed in a weekend <laughs> when you read Mark's gospel, because it, it goes so fast. Bam, 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 one thing after another. And you don't really appreciate the span of time between events, one event after another. And it's the same with uh, Jesus' baptism. We were speaking about that uh, the other week. You know, we tend to th- when we read, we think, immediately after Jesus' baptism, he set off and started recruiting disciples, then he went off and started doing that. But as, particularly when you take into account the other Gospels and John's Gospel, uh, some of the, the disciples were already disciples. They were followers of John, and uh, they come under Jesus' wing. And they think that perhaps after Jesus' baptism, there was probably a span of a year before this moment that we're going to read just now. Jesus has been working in association with John, his cousin, John the Baptist. And John, and it had to be for John that his role, his function as the herald, as Jude was speaking on last week, that had to come to an end. It needed to, be, to fulfill its purpose. And it came to an end in that moment, in a sense, when John was finally arrested and uh, faced his death. And that was then the moment where Jesus came to prominence. And we can read that in this verses that we're going to read just now. So um, if you want a Bible, we've got uh, three here. And uh, if you would like one, just put your hand up and our wonderful Bible monitor will uh, come and bring one to you. <laughs> okay. Right, so if you turn to Mark's Gospel, chapter 1, and I say we're going to read in verses 14 to 20, and it'll come up on the screen as well. Jesus announces the good news. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake. For they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. 
At once they left their nets and followed him. When he'd gone a little further, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, preparing their nets. Without delay he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. Amen. Just to rephrase again, chapter, verse 14. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come. Repent and believe the good news. You know, in first, it sounds like the very same message that John the Baptist was already preaching. It was Jesus telling us anything new. That's, but we have to remember that John was proclaiming a preparatory message. He was basically saying, get yourselves ready. Come on, get ready, because he's coming. Jesus is just picking up the thread and says, well, I'm here. (laughs) It's here. It's now. Now is the time. John could only take you so far. He could take you to the door, but he can't take you in. Jesus says, I'm the door. I'm the way. Come on in now. It's here. The kingdom has arrived in me. The long wait is over. Your king has come. He's arrived. Receive me. The kingdom of God stands in your midst of you now. Turn your hearts and minds and embrace the fulfillment of everything that John had proclaimed to you previously. And for us, we are now living in the now. We are living in the time. The time is now. It wasn't 2,000 years ago. Yes, it was, but it is now as well. We are living in the now. You know, there will never be a more convenient time or day to receive Jesus than now. You know, it's difficult to appreciate the long way, that that moment when Jesus announced himself, when he went into Galilee and started proclaiming the good news. Because we live on the other side of the, the declaration. Up till now, the people have been waiting. They've been longing for this moment, for the salvation of God to come. You know, for some of us who are old enough to remember, you know, the the Berlin Wall, which that picture is taken from. I think it was built in 1961. But it marked the the, the separation of East Germany from West Germany. The West is familiar to us. We live in the West. We live under democracy and, uh, and freedom and rights and so on. But for those who lived in the East, they were ruled over by the communist state. Where largely for most of them, it was a state of oppression and control. And some of them, how they longed to be on the west side, but they couldn't get there because of the, the, the Berlin Wall. It was estimated that perhaps about 140 people lost their lives trying to get over or escape somehow across the wall, that either through accident or through assassination. So you can imagine the absolute joy in 1989 when the Berlin Wall came down. It marked the end of the separation where Germany was reunited. The wall was torn down and the people could swarm. And they didn't hang about. They weren't just sort of saying, well, I think it's happening today. They didn't, weren't waiting for it. They were there. They were, as you can see, they were <laughs> slamming up against the wall pushing it, knocking it down, because they could, and it was a time when it was for it to come down, where they could all swarm into the West. How many of them had waited 
from 1961 to 1989. It seems like a long time. For many, it would have been a lifetime. But it marked the end of something new. They could go over into the other side. And how they celebrated it. There would have been nobody, I imagine, on the east side of that wall that day who would have been still been lying in their bed saying, well, maybe go up and have a look. <laughs> they were up. They were up for it. They swarmed it and they helped demolish the whole thing. You see, this is a day of salvation. Salvation has arrived in Jesus. The forgiveness of sins, the promise of the Holy Spirit to be reminded with a a heavenly Father in a way that the scribes could only dream of. You know, when I was a kid, there used to be um, the rag and bone man, not the the pop star, (laughs) the original rag and bone man, the, the rag man as we called him. I think it's on the next slide. To describe it, it sounds a bit weird. It was this man that went about with a horse and cart uh, blowing a trumpet in the streets of Glasgow. <laughs> so you knew when he was coming. But that was the most exciting moment for any kid. Because you know what we did? We would run upstairs and uh, rifle through, well, in our judgment, we were old stuff. And uh, your mum's old tat. And say, Mum, ah, the rag man's here. I've got to take it down. And you race back down and uh, you would either this man, your your old clothes or any old rubbish that you didn't want anymore, and you would get a balloon for it. <laughs> doesn't sound like much, does it? A balloon. But, you know, when you're six years old, uh, the balloon exchange for an old piece of clothing you don't want anymore is pretty good. Or maybe even if in a good day it might be a toffee apple. You know, it, it was a good deal. <laughs> you know. But, um, so we go and say, I'm sorry, Mum, but these shoes, Mum, look, there's a hole in them. You don't need them anymore, do you? I give them the rag, man. That's what it was like. How many family heirlooms were given away, I don't know, <laughs> to the rag man. I'm sure many a rag man's a, a wealthy man now. You, probably, you see them on Antiques Roadshow now. <laughs> but it's, it's the same. We live in the now. Here is the kingdom of God. It's offered to you. How will you respond to Jesus' invitation? For those who are not old enough to remember, it may be more akin to waiting for the release of the iPhone 8, or soon to be followed by the X. You know, there's a, in the next slide, there's somebody in, I think it's in Sydney, even before the release was, announcement was made, you get one guy who's already queuing up, waiting for his I, iPhone 8. It's again, in reality though, an iPhone, or even an iPhone X, it pales in comparison to what Jesus is offering. And so can I appeal to you in the words of Hebrew 3.15, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. You know, often we don't get to choose the moment when Jesus comes. He's like, a bit like the rag man. He comes unexpectedly. You're preoccupied. You're, 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 you're involved in something else. Other concerns in life, whether you're six or 60. But that's just an illusion. Because when the call of Jesus comes, in that moment, he's expecting a response. There may be some of us right now to whom the Spirit is bringing some sense of conviction. In a sense, he's, he's wooing you. He's convincing you of the grace of Jesus. The promise of something greater 
than you've ever known. You're standing on the threshold of whether to come in or not. Can I appeal to you as one who's tried sitting on the fence? It's not a comfortable place to be. Try to hold back the the decision to commit or not. Listen, it is the greatest decision you will ever make in your life. To come into the grace of God, to the love of God. It exceeds anything that you can ever imagine. And I say that because if the moment is now, don't close your ears to it. Because you don't know if it will ever come again. And if it does, you'll be more deaf to it for having closed your ears to it for the first time. Now is the time to respond. And in the space of this morning, I'm going to make an invitation for anyone who's, who's never taken the opportunity to, to say, you know what? Jesus, you're right. I've heard enough. I know enough. I'm going to commit my life to you. And we're going to do that later. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. It's an invitation to come on in. This is the gospel. It is good news. It's not bad news. It's good news. Jesus is coming with salvation. He's coming to rescue us from torment, judgment, and everlasting death. He's coming with the promise of everlasting life. He's coming with the promise of adoption. To be adopted by God the Father. To be recognized as his child forever. To be loved by such an amazing love. To find your heart's true home. You know, if we truly understood, if we really did truly understood the, the whole weight and the depth of the grace and the gospel, the good news, none of us would still be lying in our beds. Just like these people at the wall, we'd be battering on the door of heaven. Let me in. I want it. And that's what Jesus is calling us to. That's what the kingdom of God is. That is what the kingdom of heaven is. It's to live under the care to live under the authority, the leadership, the influence of God in your life, here and now. It's not about changing your nationality to Israeli and learning Hebrew and going to move, uh, move to Israel. It's not a geographic thing. It's a heart thing. It's an invitation to surrender to the will of God, the Spirit of God, influencing, shaping, transforming your life. In a sense, it's been doing what the first Adam couldn't do. It's like saying, God, I want you to be the boss. I want you to be the boss of my life. For these few years, however long they are, in this life, I want to live it for you. I want to know you now. That's what it is to be in the kingdom of God. It's an inward transformation. It's brought about by the presence of the Holy Spirit. He comes and he makes his dwelling in us. That completely changes our outlook on life. And that's just the beginning. You know, if I could, if, if it was even possible to condense the entirety of the Bible into a few verses to explain the gospel, well, I've got a couple of good ones here. Let me, let me share them with you, and they'll come up on the screen as well. The first one For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish have eternal life he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us 
gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? A third one. So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. Number four. God went for the jugular when he sent his own son. He didn't deal with the problem as something remote and unimportant. In his his son, Jesus, he personally took on the human condition, entered the distorted mess of struggling humanity in order to set it right once and for all. And I've got to read these other two as well. It wasn't so long ago that we ourselves were stupid and stubborn, dupes of sin, ordered every which way by our glance going around with a chip on our shoulder, hated and hating back. But when God, our kind and loving Saviour, stepped in, he saved us from all that. It was all his doing. We had nothing to do with it. He gave us a good bath and we came out of it new people, washed inside and out by the Holy Spirit. Our Saviour Jesus poured out new life so generously. God's gift has restored our relationship with him and given us back our lives. And there's more life to come, an eternity of life. You can count on this. And lastly, for it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not for you and from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. You know, for those of you familiar with scripture, you probably could have come up with a, a dozen more, even more. These are just a brief snapshot. But this is what it is. This is what it is to be drawn into the kingdom of God. Come on in. You know, Jesus put it quite succinctly when he said this. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them is like a wise man who builds his house on a rock. The rain fell, the torrents raged, and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall because its foundation was on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain fell, the torrents raged, and the winds blew and beat against the house. And it fell, and great was its collapse. You know, when we use the word repent, you know, it's got got a bad rep these days. It's kind of thought of in a kind of punitive sense, repent. They said, is repent. It's about completely turn yourself around and go in the other direction. Trash the way of life you were living before. This way is better and it's bigger. It's way bigger than better than anything that the world can offer you. It's a life that will go on and continue to live on in the presence of God Forever. It's a life that's entirely wrapped up in the grace and the love of God that enables you to do so much more to live like Christ in the here and now. It's a life that can claim God legitimately as its Father. You're no longer orphans in any sense. You belong to God the Father and His love everlasting. You know, I've often referred to it when I've, I've spoken to it, but I still remember the distinct moment when I, I stood. <laughs> I, 
I stood on the bench at Celtic Park and I <laughs> I'm great with joy, it's alright. <laughs> I, I committed my life to Christ. And the sensation that I felt that moment, it took me it was I was I was unprepared for it, but in hindsight I should have expected it. It was that sense of I'm home. I'm home. This is the place where I belong. This is where I've always belonged. And yet I never knew it. I never realized it. Until that moment. (laughs) This is the place where I'm loved best. This is where I was created to live and exist. In the presence of God. It's not just some future thing. He's in, it's in the here and now. But it will continue into eternity. You know, the reason why that we love the story of the prodigal son so much is because it speaks about our whole sense of identity and who we are and where we belong. We have a heavenly Father who, whose heart aches for us to return to Him. You know, the joy that's experienced by both the father and the son in that story is quite telling. As much as we long for him, he longs even more so for us. This is a place where you belong. This is a place where you'll be loved the most. Will you come into the kingdom of God? He goes on to read, As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew, Casting a net into the lake. For they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said. And I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little further, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. To come into the kingdom of God, to come into the presence of God, is, in a sense, it's to join the family business. <laughs> you know, it shouldn't surprise us to think that, you know, when you think of days past, way before the Industrial Revolution, you know, industries, they're always family industries, weren't they? Somebody would start up a weaving business, or a blacksmith, or um, a baker shop, whatever. But it would be a family industry. As the father did it, the son would get in in the act, and so on, and it would pass on through the generations. And we still get a semblance of that in some of our most common surnames, like Smith, Baker. Where did they come from? Well, it's because somebody, your ancestry was a blacksmith or somebody was a baker. So it shouldn't surprise us that Jesus himself is considered the good shepherd. We too are quickly drawn into the family business. And it's born in the heart. When we experience grace, when we experience the mercy of God in our own lives, it begins to fuel a fire in us. A love for others to know that same compassion, that same grace that we received. Why would you ever want to keep it to yourselves? You know, the Grenfell fire disaster that we're all, I'm sure, familiar with that happened just before the summer. We saw at least, what well, was they think at least 80 people died. It is a tragedy, terrible tragedy. 
but even more people would have died if it hadn't been for the love and the compassion of other family members, services, neighbours, regardless of the relationships. There's an innate desire in everyone to save a life. And that's what it is to be a disciple of Jesus. The calling of Simon Peter, of Andrew and James and John, they understood this. You know, sometimes I don't know what happened between then and now because sometimes I think the church has forgotten this. The church has always been, since its inception, the last emergency service. We've been charged with rescuing the world. We've been charged with sharing the good news of Jesus' love and grace. There's no escaping it, nor in our heart of hearts would we want to escape it either. If we properly understood and experienced the grace of God, we can't watch from afar and watch the world burn. If you have the Spirit of God in you, then you have it in you to save a life. You have it in you to rescue a life from eternal death to eternal life. You know, there's not many occasions when we can look at the first disciples of Jesus and say, that's how to do it. <laughs> Their early experience of walking and living with Jesus, they're often marked as failures. You know, they get it wrong. They misunderstand. They don't do what Jesus is asking them to do. They're wrapped up in themselves at times. But here, right at the very beginning, they do get one thing right. And that is they hear the call and they respond. Can we do the same? You know, regardless of whether you've been a Christian for 50 years or 50 minutes, there is a sense of urgency in Mark's gospel that should stir in the heart of us. Will you become a fisher of men and a fisher of women? Will you give your all to Jesus? You know, there's no such thing as a slot machine Christianity. We sometimes treat it like that. Say, well, I said a prayer many years ago. It's not about that. It's about committing your life. He owns it. I respond to him and his direction every day. Jesus gave his life for it. Will you do the same? Can we please stand?